take our scriptures this morning and go to the book of 2 Timothy. Pastor Hobie delivered to us a profound Christmas devotional in the 9 o'clock hour. And so thankful to the Lord for what he laid on Pastor Hobie's heart. And we were all richly blessed by that. We'll continue with sermons on the Incarnation for the month of December. Uh, today, uh, because of the unique day in which it is, we're going to consider one verse in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that I trust will be a reaffirmation and an encouragement uh, to your hearts as we consider it. Before we look at this text, I just want to publicly thank where are Nick and his near do, dear new family? Where are you seated? There you are. Nick is somewhere. Okay. Congratulations to you and your, and your new home. Praise God for that. And we've been praying for you folks. And so thankful. I know there's babies that have been born since I've been gone that I haven't met yet. If you've not had your baby prayed for in the morning service, we'd love to do that this month. Let us know. I look forward to meeting your little ones here, uh, maybe today, who knows. Um, um, a conventional wisdom and unconventional wisdom. August 24th, a little after midnight. Um, I was dozing off and was awakened by a faint sound of a siren. It was so faint, I thought it might be a local firehouse dispatching a unit, a fire truck to tend to an emergency. I continued to listen. It was not the sound of a fire truck. It was a faint, familiar sound. And so I decided to turn on my TV and see if the weather warnings of the earlier evening were coming true. Because typically when you hear that faint siren sound, it's usually a test, right? I turned it on, and right away, uh, Betsy Kling on WKYC, she's on there, and she's saying, if you're in Mentor, you should seek shelter. So rudely, now awakened out of my sleep, I reached over to Rhonda, who was sound asleep, and I said, sweetheart, I think the siren's going off, and Betsy says we should go to the basement. <laughs> so I said, what do you think? You think we should? You know? So I've been there in that house for 20 years. I've never visited my downstairs basement for that reason, but I, it was the first time for everything. So we did. We did. After the, the storm was passed, and unfortunately some significant destruction, even upon some of your homes here, uh, up in the Great Lakes Mall area. We, we, we came back upstairs to survey, and uh, I began to think as we started to, to head not off to sleep again, I said, sweetheart, that siren, it was, I don't remember it being that faint in sound before. And, uh, and she goes, yeah, that's interesting. She goes, I could barely hear it too, even when you said, you went to the back door and you opened the door, we could barely hear it then. And I said, wow, I wonder if the one near us is broken. And I, I, I hope everyone heard it so they at least could be warned, right, uh, to get to a safe place. 
Anyways, a few days went on, and I ran into a city official. And I said, hey, is the, is the tornado warning siren broken in our area of Mentor? And he kind of hung his head a little bit, and he says, well, that's an interesting question. He goes, apparently, there were quite a few residents who were complaining of the decibel level of the real warning sirens when they would go off just in test form and, and they would hurt their ears. And so we did go back and local EPA, we did kind of turn down the volume a little bit. And, and he goes, I think we might be revisiting that again. I said, that would be a good idea. <laughs> that would be a good idea. Now, I don't know all the details of that. That's what this local city friend of mine uh, had told me. And uh, we're grateful that uh, they're not going to continue to rely on the, the conventional wisdom of those who pleaded with them to turn the volume down on a life and death warning system. We want to sustain life, don't we? The church for a millennia of time has been in existence and it has governed itself according to quite a few conventional ideas and practices. Not always squarely or purely biblical, but conventional and I can't call those aspects or practices of conventional wisdom all that wrong. Uh, but I would say in time and in perpetuity, they don't always serve the church well. They don't always allow the church to remain protected spiritually, practically. And I think these conventional ideas of how we have done church for all these decades of time um, certainly for me and I think for us and a lot of churches has really turned down the volume. Uh, it's not allow us to, to hear and observe and to consider and apply what the Bible actually says in its wisdom in relationship to how the church should govern herself. Uh, we're studying this morning uh, just one verse and a little pericope here, a little paragraph that, that describes the office of a pastor and describes his responsibilities in a particular way. We'll compare and contrast conventional and spiritual wisdom from Scripture throughout the whole sermon this morning, but I want to I draw your attention to biblical wisdom, not conventional wisdom, because biblical wisdom is the loudest siren. It's the, it's the biggest protector of the church. It's life and, and it's safety. Paul says here in chapter 2, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 1, You therefore, my son, Paul speaking to Timothy, his son in the faith, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And our text is verse 2 this morning. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men 
who will be able to teach others also. There are four metaphors in this text that describe the the nature and the function, the disposition and the practice of pastoral ministry. We're going to consider one of them. There's the, the office of a teacher, a soldier, an athlete, a farmer. All of these are essential. But I find it interesting here that teacher is mentioned first. Can it be concluded that the teacher metaphor, if that's what you want to call it, I don't believe it's metaphorical here, and its obligations to reproduce itself is mentioned first because if its primary activity of existence to maintain the health of the church, and can it also be assumed that if a pastor teacher is intent on training others to do the same, then those trainees will also be astute spiritual soldiers athletes and farmers nonetheless let's examine together the pastor teacher his content his responsibility with his gift and specific regard to the material that's in front of us today now ladies I I certainly don't want you to um, um, I don't even need to say that negatively Negatively, I know you will learn from this text, even though we're going to be specifically addressing our responsibility as pastors to train more pastors and more teachers. Because you, in your own right, scripturally, have the obligation to to shepherd and to teach those in the flock that scripture would have ordained for you to teach. So there's scripture here. All of it's given by inspiration of God and is profitable for this teaching for all of us this morning. I'm assuming all here have studied through this passage and know it quite well. Personally, I've been most intrigued with the two words, the things. You see that in verse 2? Remember those? The things. He starts the text with that. Which you have heard from me. What are the things Paul is telling Timothy to entrust to all in Ephesus, particularly in this context, to the men who would be the pastor, teachers, and teachers of that church and its plants within its city. Because we know from history that the mother church, there was a mother church in Ephesus, and she had the privilege of planting quite a few churches in that large city. We want to understand only the content, but where does the ability to effectively know and convey the didactic material come from? And what's the fruit of knowing and conveying and applying the the things, the content of the church? How does living out the reality of the pastor's responsibility here aid the health of the church in time? So in relationship to these three things, I'm going to give you three points this morning. I'm even going to um, give you the sub-points to these points at this time. So if you're a note-taker... Uh, or even if you're an audible learner, uh, you can have these um, points remain prominent in your minds and hearts now and throughout the day. I would like to discuss with you, first of all, the nature of the things, the nature of the things. And a couple sub-points to this first main point. I want to discuss the spiritual intimacy 
in relationship to the things Paul mentions here. I want to speak to their spiritual ability, the intimacy, the ability, and then to their content, the spiritual content. And then I'd like to address this morning the necessity of the teaching of these things as to how we actively do that, first of all, the activity of the expression of these things and the teaching of these things. And number two, in relationship to authenticity, activity and authenticity. And then this morning we'll conclude with the nurturing reality. What's the fruit of the teaching and the application of these things? The nurturing reality. And we'll consider the capacity of the men who teach these things and then the clarity of their responsibility uh, to do so. Okay? So those are the three main points and the subpoints, and uh, we'll continue on now this morning. Now, the nature of these things. In order for the content of the things to be taught, there must be a relationship between at least two people. We see that here in the text, don't we? Paul is speaking to his son in the faith. This is stepping off into the pathway of understanding the nature of these things. He says this is where the spiritual intimacy is. There's something, there's content, there's someone who knows it, there's someone that needs to receive it. So Paul says here, you therefore my son. This is the intimacy. First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 2, Paul calls Timothy his true child in the faith. Similarly, he calls Timothy my beloved son in 2 Timothy chapter 2, chapter 1 and verse 2. As you all know, probably, Paul says of Timothy in Philippians 2.22, as he speaks to the Philippian people, but you know of Timothy's proven worth that he served me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. In our text, Paul is directly addressing Timothy as his spiritual mentee. Paul had the opportunity to share the gospel to Timothy in Lystra when Timothy was a young teenager. We all know that the term my son is spiritual in nature and that Paul had the privilege of seeing Timothy born again under his preaching. Significant players in Timothy's life in relationship to the gospel we know where his grandmother and his mother. Potentially, Timothy knew Christ before he heard Paul's teaching. His grandmother and mother's teaching certainly made him wise unto salvation. The hour of his conversion, we're not sure. We, we assume that it possibly could have been the book of Acts when Paul preached at Lystra where Timothy grew up as a boy. Timothy went on to enjoy 18 years of Ministry side by side with the Apostle Paul, learning from Paul as a spiritual son of the faith. Paul advised Timothy well into his late 30s, when between the age of 38 and 40, he was placed as pastor at the church of Ephesus, to which he's pastoring now as Paul writes him in this letter. These are just facts we know from a simple reading of Scripture. 
but our attention as to the nature of knowing the things we ought to teach and that effectively teaching them has everything to do with learning them and teaching them within a spiritual relationship. I'm confident that every spiritual leader here longs and prays for the opportunity at the local church level, level to have a son or daughter in the faith. And, and if you're not, I would encourage you to begin to pray so. Some of you are sons and daughters of spiritual mentors. You know the deep value and, can I say, objective need you had and have for that spiritual mentor in your life as you approached your own gospel life. I'm confident this terminology of spiritual intimacy has inspired and preserved much of our learning. Could it be that Paul uses these spiritual terms of endearment because they're necessary and therefore should become normal among us in our assembly? Again, if you had a spiritual mentor that shepherded you into ministry, you know how pivotal that person was and is to you, even if they're with the Lord now. Having that person of spiritual intimacy in your background compels us to be the same to one another in faith and in time. Some are here today and you actually have been developed in the Christian faith and you've never had a father or mother or spiritual mentor. And I've talked to you, I know who you are. And one of the guttural griefs of your life is the regret that you came to Christ maybe watching a sermon on television or reading your own Bible or maybe you found a tract. There's one person here that found a tract in a restaurant and just picked it up not knowing what it was and read and came to Christ. And from that point forward, you had to find your own way through your Christian life. And God led you to a church because you figured that was the first place to begin. <laughs> and maybe after a few churches, you finally found one that actually taught God's word that your soul desired, supernaturally desired because of concur, uh, conversion to hear. And maybe, maybe through the processes of, of worship and, and membership and just beginning to serve, you were mentored by the body in his mercy, praise God, and not just also first by a person. God in his mercy is able to do that. I would say the model here, though, is primary in Scripture. Is primary in Scripture. I think it should be okay for all of us to want to be mentored so that we can mentor someone at the local church level. Beautiful scene when I came in this morning was one of our youth leaders sitting down with three young ladies in the, in, the, in the lobby this morning who made the sacrifice, whose hearts probably wanted to be in here singing carols, but seated in the lobby. And many of you do the same on Wednesday nights and Sunday nights and Sunday mornings in coffee shops and in your homes throughout the week, sitting down and shepherding souls. I think the text would not only describe it and identify it for us, but would by God's grace, compel us all to move in that direction.
These are very intimate relationships. These are necessary relationships. So the nature of teaching these things would require spiritual intimacy and spiritual ability. That's in the text here. My son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in the grace like two sides of the same ministry coin or sword, if you will. One side is human responsibility and the other is God's ability. You know, A.W. Tozer said it's doubtful whether God can use anyone until he's wounded them deeply. Paul knew the struggles Timothy had endured, having grown up his life with a, without a father or a spiritual father in his life and in a single home for a significant, single parent home for a significant part of his life. Some of you know those toils. In addition to that, we know from Scripture that Timothy was naturally given to timidity and discouragement, two traits that are common among boys who grow up without a spiritual or fraternal influence in their home. So it's okay for Paul to remind his spiritual son that, that anything that he does in relationship to the things that, he's supposed, that he's received that he's supposed to teach can be done with a lot of help from heaven. Like exclusive help from heaven. If you've not had a father or a mentor, God's still capable <laughs> to mentor you through this. He's enough. And you know, it's true for us, isn't it? As we are responsible, God's grace is powerful. There's nothing God commands us to do. He does not give grace enough and grace sufficient for us to perform that duty. Truly nothing can be done of any eternal value if we don't do so without a divine assist. Be strong in the grace. This is what ministry by grace is like. You do what you do, but God does what only his grace and its nature can do to sustain you. And often when we're providentially wounded by God and consequently brought to the lowest place our person has ever visited, there, completely emptied of self-ability, we more fully realize God's ability and we're able to do ministry work by the grace we have in Christ. I think of each one of our pastors that are seated here this morning with us. Well, Pastor Steve's in the emergency room with his daughter, but each one of us has endured some great grief that has exposed to us our innate darknesses and weaknesses. And the greater the grief, the greater the exposure of our own inability, our own innate darknesses and weaknesses. I think of Pastor Hobie almost losing his life because of an undiagnosed burst appendix. You may not have known that. We're not even sure, apart from the grace of God, why he's alive in here today. He should be in heaven. He endured kidney cancer with his dear wife. Pastor Steve grew up in a single-parent home reared by a godly mom. Pastor Mike and Kelly have endured, alongside of their daughter faithfully, a 
a diagnosis and a life of difficulty, a physical ailment ordained by God. God put me through, oh, I think 12 or 13 surgeries. He allowed me to find a girl whose mom was killed by a drunk driver on the way to her college graduation. These pains, among many more, Pastor Mavar, uh, brain surgeries, knee replacement surgeries, and years before that, many other things. God exposes us to unique pain. And when he does, that's where he places us in our inability to trust his ability. Be strong, not of your own measure, because it ain't there. Be strong in the grace. So there's spiritual intimacy. There's certainly spiritual ability. And then as to the content, Paul sums up for Timothy what he is to teach in the first two words of verse 2, the things. What are the things? A similar phrase, these things, was employed by Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 1, in verses 5 to 7, Peter lists seven virtues of grace that if lived, fear faithfully by God's people, would ensure a believer an abundant entrance into heaven. Not work salvation. Peter definitely teaches us they're all born-again people are going to heaven, and some are going to have a little bit more abundance entrance into heaven than others. It's clear in the text. Multiple times in that short chapter of 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter speaks of the necessity of the things to the persevering life of any believer. Clearly the things that Peter was speaking to were bound to that context alone. And so considering the content of the things Paul asks Timothy to teach, we should consider 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Look over there real quickly, real quickly with me. 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. He says there, a page to your left, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into the glory. These are the things that you need to hold on to. Some of the things that allow the church to know its structure and to know its, to know its function. I'm certain what Paul expected Timothy to teach included the content of all the pastorals that had been written to Timothy Specifically, as he would convey those to the Ephesian church. I suppose if we were confined to understand that the things from Paul's two letters to Timothy, 1 and 2 Timothy, were just the commands in those letters alone, we would find 43 commands in, first, in the first letter and 33 commands in the second. Again, if it's the things that Timothy was to entrust, that he had heard, that he was to entrust to the teaching saints at Ephesus, maybe we're bound to those 76 commands alone and that would be quite a lot. But we continue. The things Paul mentioned here were heard, the text says, by Timothy in the presence of many witnesses. 
So the content of what Timothy was to teach reaches beyond the revelation of the pastorals. Paul uses another phrase in his writings, the traditions, twice plural. What are the traditions we see in 2 Thessalonians 3 and Romans 16? You can read that on your own time. When Paul uses that phrase, he's clearly using it in reference to all the things that he had been inspired to write, to preach to the churches up to that point in his travels and in his planting. The traditions would include the body of revealed truth given to Paul over time, not just truths directly written to the Thessalonians or the Romans or to the Ephesians as written to Timothy. I'm reminded of Acts chapter 20 when Paul spends those final days with the Ephesian elders on the island of Miletus as he reminds them, I was with you for three years, night and day in tears, preaching, teaching to the whole will of God, these things, these traditions. So again, I don't believe we're confined to understand that the things mentioned here are those confined to the pastorals alone. They've been heard over time with Timothy and Paul and some pretty big crowds and small ones at that too. Paul makes allusion when he writes to Timothy that he's to remember the things that were taught him from childhood by his own mother and grandmother that made him wise into salvation we mentioned earlier. As Timothy learned from his grandmother and mother, he began to learn from Paul from his youth forward. So Paul most likely met Timothy, as we've already said, he's about 13, 14 years old. He suggested to follow Paul on his missionary journeys by his hometown folks. And he does so. And for 18 years, as we've already said, he continues to learn the things that God had given to Paul to speak and to write. To learn, to apply, to live. With a little background here it's safe to assume that the things that Paul mentions would include all that Timothy had heard from Paul and the presence of many witnesses from the time he was saved to the time he was placed as pastor at Ephesus. And that's a lot. Knowing the things would require Timothy to be a theologian and a ministry practitioner There's certainly quite a lot of material in the things Paul mentions here. There's other texts to consider that would support what we've discovered this morning, but these things should be enough for now. But this is the spiritual content that's wed to a spiritual ability and a spiritual intimacy in relationship to these things. Now there's the necessity of these things. The very nature of the things, our second point here, the necessity, the very nature of the things demands that something be done with them. So we're going to take a little bit of time here to talk about what's to be done with them in their activity and uh, authentication or authenticity. My daughter runs relays in track and field. One of those is the 4x400. It's common um, in preseason for multiple sessions of practice to be dedicated just to the handing off of the baton from one person, one runner to another. Hours and hours of time are dedicated 
just to making sure that four brief moments in a race happen flawlessly. Everyone who knows track and field and relay races knows success in that race depends on the handoffs. Before you can practice the handoffs, you've got to find kids who have the skill to run what's called the hardest sprint in sport, the 400 meter. And when you find those who run it well, typically in high school, any girl that can run a full lap around a track and around a minute or a little bit more, you have to find girls who actually want to run it because everybody knows it's the most grueling race. And once you find them, you've pretty much found girls that are willing to have every thread and, uh, of their being tested <laughs> uh, to the core. So when you find them, you've got a special group of kids. They're gifted physically and mentally. It takes quite a while to find them, convince them to run the race, train them to run it, and then often need the fortitude to run two 400s in the same meet, typically an individual, and then the 4x4, four four, and that's even more interesting. But nonetheless, there's nothing more devastating in a 4x1 or a 4x4 four four race than to have a flawed baton handoff. All of us have witnessed a mistake in the handoff at the Olympic level of you're sitting around your living rooms, right? And, uh, you know, the, the favorites, right? many times often the, the, the United States and clear favorites on one of those baton, baton handoffs is the, there's a, even a stutter or a drop and everyone in your living room does what? Oh, you got to be kidding. But when these talented, skilled athletes succeed and win, we marvel at the level of precision, athleticism, training, and discipline it took for them to succeed. In a spiritual sense, that's what Paul is asking Timothy to do in Ephesus with skilled, trained men to whom he's taught the things. The verb here is entrust. Entrust these things. It's a simple definition. To, to place before, to place beside. But my friends, it's an imperative it's an aorist imperative, and all that simply means is from the time of Timothy's appointment of all of the 76 imperatives in the, in the pastorals, this is the significant one that must be attended to. He must. He doesn't have an option here. He must be praying about. He must be looking for. He must be preaching to. And then he must train men in these things. This is the spiritual way not necessarily the conventional way in which ministry leadership has been transitioned in time. Luo and Nida in their grammatical work means, this means to commit oneself to the care of doing something. To show oneself to be true. To, to, it's the idea of setting food before someone so they can eat and be nourished. The word has already been used twice in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 and 14, with what Paul had entrusted to the Lord and the treasure that had been entrusted to Timothy. 
we gain added understanding and importance of this verb when we consider where it's employed in the New Testament. Pretty popular text, Luke 23, 46, when Jesus said on the cross at his death, Lord, into your hands I entrust my spirit. In Acts 14 in Lystra, the people speaking in the Lyconian language cry out, the gods have become men and have come down to us. Paul and Barnabas are named Zeus and Hermes. Glorious order. Because God had granted Paul the ability to heal a lame man from birth. They cry out to the people of Lystra and plead with them to hear their gospel and not deify them. The Jewish leaders come down and settle the crowd and then in turn seek to stone and stone Paul. God's servants leave and go to Derby. They preach there and made disciples. And then they return to Lystra. Bold move to be sure, if you know the context. They also went on to Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples in all three cities and encouraging them to continue in the faith. In each place, they reminded the followers of Christ that it would be through many trials they would all enter into the kingdom of heaven they appointed elders in every church and they commanded the word there is entrusted themselves to the lord in whom they had believed acts 14 and verse 23 i do find it fascinating that paul never offers timothy a conditional reality in regard to in regard to entrusting these things to him that he's also to entrust to others. He doesn't say, if you have men, entrust them. Entrust these things to them. Hang on with me here. I know the scripture doesn't speak from silence, it just speaks. Can we safely be challenged and assume that the Lord is interested in granting us gifted men to carry on the race after us or with us? Can we pray for and prepare to teach the things we've heard among many witnesses to other gifted men among us today to ensure the health and security and protection of the church tomorrow? The Lord has faithfully provided us with men here at Grace. He's been so good to us. We're gathered this morning to again consider the goodness of God in this regard as we approach a vote in recognition of the Lord's provision and obedience to this text. You know, the average life of a Bible-preaching church in the United States since its inception is 70 years. We're celebrating our 75th year all year. We're five years beyond the average, so maybe we're a C-plus now. I don't know if the average is C Some of you come from churches whose doors are closed now or considering being closed. If they're still open, in many cases, a handful of people remain just keeping the church open and the lights on and the bills paid, and there's no pastor, teacher, teacher even in the pulpit from one Lord's Day to another. So many pulpits without teachers or pastor, teachers. All these things must be entrusted to men. Timothy was actively to lay these things before men alongside, put them before them like delicious food 
that young men love to eat. It means to put them before authentic men. The text says here, commit these things to faithful men. Often faithful men are considered to be men like Timothy. There's no exclusive evidence to conclude this. The faithful would be those spiritually developed under Timothy's care in Ephesus as he had been developed by Paul. Of course, this includes potential pastor teachers, but never at the expense of saints with various spiritual skill sets either. One gifted person in the church can never receive the spiritual attention they need while making other spiritual things expendable. Entrusting faithful things by the grace of God to all who are under our care and faithful is essential. Trusting the grace of God to grant wisdom to mature, gifted people under our care is essential. All of them. Some call this discipleship or disciple making. Nonetheless, entrusting demands spiritual reproduction at every level while remembering that heaven is very interested and involved in helping each of us do so. Each of you. Faithfulness is an attribute of God. We know that. Paul cites it here in chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. Paul alludes to the faithfulness of God at the end of 1 Thessalonians 5. Faithful is he who has called you who also will bring it to pass. I'm speaking to many here who understand faithful ministry as ministry that mirrors the, mirrors the very character of God. In our context, this faithfulness of God through each of us has an appeal. This appeal is clearly to other men and women who may have the same spiritual giftedness that Timothy had. Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy 1.6 to kindle afresh present active infinitive there so powerful really make it a disciplined habit to reactivate or refresh this spiritual gift that had been given to him he also is to remember in doing so that God has not given him a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind disposition aside this is our obligation per our text from pastor teacher to pastor teacher. And we finish with the nurturing reality of these things as to capacity and responsibility. These are men who are able to teach in this context. Now hang on with me here. This is fascinating. This word able is not the same word as apt or able or capable to teach that we see as a requirement for pastoral ministry in 1 Timothy 3. But it's a clear indication that Timothy has a responsibility underpinned by grace to spiritually and ministerially reproduce himself among men who are adequately qualified. Theologically, philosophically, and practically to clearly remain on mission to teach others also. That's not a tornado siren. All faint though it be. This is a word of capacity. Capacity. This is in relationship to, it's really a mathematical numerical term. It's, it's a considerable number of objects or events, probably implying what one author says, what we could be expected to do under circumstances that we're given. It's a considerable, many, quite a number of. 
It's, it's a content word. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, how do I put this? Paul's basically telling Timothy this. Commit to these faithful men who are able to teach. And Timothy, you're probably not going to have just one. That's the idea here. Able is a, a possible body of men, a group of men that you're going to have to timid Timothy and trust these things to somehow past your disposition by God's grace be strong and be able so capacity is not only here upon Timothy but upon the number of men that God would be pleased to give him but the assumption is truly this it's teaching us the Lord doesn't give us more than we're able to handle in trial or in healthy perpetuity in ministry there are a plurality of men here gifted to teach and to lead this flock. Their collective ability is divinely proportioned to just shepherd us as the men were and their ability to shepherd Ephesus. The very clear assumption is that the Lord will be faithful to provide this reality as long as we are faithful as pastors to following the command, which leads us to the second matter of its nurturing reality and that's the clarity of our responsibility. To the second word, he says you're to teach others who can also teach others. Look at the verse with me again. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of these many witnesses and trust these to faithful men who will be able, there's that capacity word, to teach others also. Now, a lot of discussion has gone on. Is this, is, this, is this the whole body or is this specifically speaking in this context to men? I will tell you the, the words here in the, are, are masculine. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for instruction, but it's very clear here that Paul's telling Timothy that in Ephesus he's provided enough men to protect the church through the pastor-teacher gift in time and in perpetuity. So the assumption is he's done the same here. And the assumption, I think it's a comfortable assumption, that he does that in every church, whether they're a church of five or a church of 5,000. Unfortunately, we live in a time of conventional church where pastors who shepherd tiny congregations don't ever feel like they can ever hand the baton off to somebody else. Many of those men I talk to and I asked them, have you ever prayed that God would provide someone for you? And have you asked your congregation to begin to pray that God would provide? And by the way, I think we have a text to stand on. to be the unbroken refrain of our churches until the Lord Jesus comes. I've often dreamed that he would come while I was preaching. So we're not done yet. So maybe it'll go from a light buzz and a sound system to a tornadic siren to a trumpet. It's such an exciting thing to anticipate. I wouldn't have to even conclude with my broken conclusion. <laughs> so feeble-minded, this, this preaching thing. 
Anyways, this is to be the unbroken refrain of our churches until the Lord Jesus comes. The people of our assemblies must join us in praying that this reality would be our reality as it should be embraced and enjoyed in time for generations to come. The protection of the health of churches pursuit of our gospel movement. Many have noticed over the years that there's four generations of saints mentioned in these few lines in 2 Timothy 2.2. I think that's significant. I also want you to know how fragile this could be. Paul writes to Timothy in AD 64-65. By the time you get to the book of Revelation, and the Lord Jesus is speaking to Timothy, we don't know speaking to the angel of the church of Ephesus. We're just one generation removed. They have a pastor teacher, but he's not on point in relationship to disciple making. Although he's preaching the word, he's standing against error. He's dotting all the right I's and crossing all the right T's, but this one thing the Lord had against him, they had forgotten their spiritual reproduction. And he was willing to remove the lampstand of influence from that church, one generation. That's why entrusting all of these things to faithful men, gifted men of capacity, from gifted men of capacity, in our church, in time, is, is so necessary. This is not hard to see in this text. Often when there's someone to hand the ministry off to, so to speak, it's not someone within the church. That's conventional wisdom. Not wrong, but just conventional. God has used it in his mercy, and that's fine. Today we form pulpit committees. We find someone not familiar with our churches. This is part of the conventional wisdom that we've all seen in time. Often we can't find just the right person because what it does is just become a parade of pastors to open pulpits before people who don't know them well and, they're, and, 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 they're, and, the, and, the, and the sheep become like consumers. They become like holiday shoppers. And easy to like and dislike and to move on to the next item whether I like it or whether I can afford it. That's not what Paul's saying here to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. That's conventional. This is spiritual wisdom. The Lord's been merciful to local churches as we function like that. We certainly call that a method. It's conventional, but I believe we've unpacked this morning something of normalcy to the church. A normalcy that leads to the multi-generational protection and nurturing of the church and its gospel advancement. Can we at least conclude from the text that Paul is speaking to a pastor teacher who is shepherding with other elders in the local church, 1 Timothy 3 in Ephesus, and that the exhortation is for them to spiritually reproduce themselves for the health of their church for the long haul? If it's that situation... Is this sort of spiritual reproduction something we're at least willing to pray would happen among our people until Jesus comes? Can we make it a matter of regular public prayer? Private prayer in your homes. Can through prayer we develop a collective expectancy among our people that God will provide by his grace men to lead in perpetuity? Are there other boys and men here this morning that have thought of the prospect or men of the prospect of pastoral ministry right. 
If there are, would you come find me today? Find our pastors today and let's begin to investigate. Because you're an answer to our prayer. It matters not to me if you're a fireman like Pastor Mavar was. It matters not to me if you're a carpenter or electrician or if you're a businessman, if you've been gifted of God to be a pastor teacher and there's this longing of the Holy Spirit upon your soul to pursue it, you pursue a good thing. Can we ask our parents of children to begin to pray and address this in specific with your children in your homes? The American dream to the local Bible teaching church has become a stage four cancer in relationship to killing conversation about who among us has this gift. It has elevated the corporate world and the athletic world and the leaders in each as the heroes of our day. Long, far too long, Can we appeal to those who have been gifted of God among us to stand up and say, I might have been, or I believe I have, and can we commit faithful things to you faithful boys and men for time and for protection? Sociologists teach us that 93% of our time we spend with our children will be spent by the time they graduate from high school. Parents, do your diligence in in relationship to training your children to help them figure out what that gift is earlier than later. And let us work with you. And make this, if they have that pastor-teacher gift, a great joy in your home, outside their salvation, and living in your home and submitting to your authority and doing the purposes of the gospel through your home. The greatest joy. And may we as a church enjoy this with these men that God's provided for us. Can we coordinate parents and pastors and teachers together with our young people to identify, train, and then have them gradually shadow the shepherds in our churches under the reality of Paul's ask of Timothy in this text? And since it's God's will, I know that it can be done by his grace and in his strength. Where God leads, he provides. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we love you. We Such a small morsel of your word this morning yet fills our spiritual stomachs to the fullest. Thank you for the divine ability of your word to instruct and convict and correct to nurture to move us forward thank you that we have a sufficient savior an omnipotent and dwelling spirit a sufficient scripture a sainthood to worship with on this morning your morning on this Lord's day all these things that we're thankful for we're also thankful for the gifts that you give us to strengthen your church 
to move her forward in these dark times to be the light of the world for the sake of Christ. Continue, Lord, to protect us as we minister together until you come. May Jesus always increase while we decrease. May your will be done and not mine. Not ours, but yours. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's sing together.